welcome to The Hobbyist. My name is Piers Cooper, and I'm here to talk to you about hobbies, my own and yours. Hello and welcome. I am Piers once again in your ears to bring you the latest episode of The Hobbyist, the podcast about hobbies and interests. I have too many hobbies and this podcast is my outlet. I tell you about my hobbies and in turn, you share yours with me. Please email me at the address in the show notes if you have a hobby you'd like to talk about. I can't wait to hear from you. Later, we have an interview with Holly Dakin about her interesting and a bit unusual hobby. But first, let me tell you about how I've been getting on. Hobbies Roundup I've been indulging in two hobbies this week. The first is chess. The second, wildlife photography. And more specifically, birds. Let me briefly take you back to December 2020 and the cold, dark nights made me hanker after some outdoors time. I started spending my lunch breaks nipping a short way to the bottom of my road where the brook runs and there are enclosed fields that harbour many small birds. I've been bird spotting on and off for about 18 months now and while I have breaks from it like any other hobby, my interest was reignited by realising that for the first time that I knew of, and I grew up in the same village that I now live in, there was a kingfisher on the brook. I caught sight of it as a flash of blue as I turned off the path and onto the muddy trail that led alongside. I'd been trying to get a proper look at a kingfisher all year. Every year I set myself one or two bird spotting goals. This year it's a bittern and or a tree creeper. And for 2020 it was this elusive little bird. Here, on the 15th of December, nearly at year end, I had finally had a clear view. I'd had flashes, maybes, but this was the kingfisher in all its glory, perched on a low branch overlooking the brook. Goal achieved! Of course, this set me wondering how I could prove my spot. Surely, I thought, a photo would be the best way. And so the next two weeks were absorbed in deciding what camera I would buy, and then, having made my second-hand purchase of an old Canon 80D body, and realising my old lenses weren't up to much, or if they were, they didn't have that much reach, I delved into the world of telephoto lenses. Much indecision and anguish later, I eventually decided to cough up what for me is a lot of money on a lens, and bought the Tamron 150-600mm G2 Super Zoom. To me, it's the best build quality and portable weight versus cost. The equivalent metal-bodied Sigma is around £500 more, a lot heavier, and for no reported optical improvement. Back to the present day, and I carry this beast around my neck and go the lockdown-permitted radius from my home to capture pictures of birds. This is now generally at the weekend, because lunchtimes are now taken up with a short turn around the village to help remove my lockdown lumpiness. It's been most unkind to my waistline. I've caught the kingfisher on camera, and recently in the snow I've been out and taken shots of other birds, including red kite, white wagtails, robins, bullfinches, chaffinches, blackbirds, dunnocks, house and hedge sparrows, greenfinches, and great and blue tits to name a few. This weekend, I noticed a moorhen seems to have made its home very close to mine, and was particularly attracted by the most astonishing song. As I say, I'm a relative newcomer to birding, and I still regularly look things up when I cannot identify them straight away. 
The camera really helps with this. Robins have a beautiful, glassy, hauntingly melancholic song. Goldfinches are fast, complex and high-pitched. Starlings, an amazing array of impersonations of other birds and calls and even environmental sounds mixed with rapid clicks and whistles. This was simply a lovely, lively tune and several birds were competing to carry the melody. What were they? Dunnocks. These tiny birds are unremarkable. Small, mainly brown and slate grey, they hang around low in hedges and most of the year are spotted only by accident, really. Now they are singing fit to burst, and this morning it was glorious. I'll never again think of Dunnocks as being dull. Moving to the subject of chess, I've been learning the main line Caro Khan defence. I can't say much about this because chess is a much more complex subject than I'm knowledgeable enough to properly discuss here. Until December, I'd not really played chess since I was in primary school. The Queen's Gambit changed that, as I think it did for millions of people, and my love for the game was reignited. I spent a fair amount of time improving my skill. Today, for instance, I lost against a 1500-rated bot, but I made no blunders in my play. That sounds like not much to talk about, but I'm a genius blunderer, the king of stupid moves at critical moments. Even though I lost by a considerable margin, it wasn't by making huge mistakes. Hopefully in time I'll beat that bot, and then try to work on my over-the-board skills once lockdown is lifted so I can truly consider myself a 1500 player. That's nowhere near the Grandmaster or even Masters, but it's where I'd like to be. A solid player with a good game and a knowledge of theory enough to keep things interesting. Chess is all about the engines these days, the computer programs that have transformed the game into one of advanced theory that probably means your 1500 player of old would possibly be thrashed by a modern player because of all the knowledge from the game databases and engines that are out there, and that's largely for free. Anyway, let's move on to today's interview. The 10 Things. Today's interview is with Holly Dakin. Welcome, Holly. Hi. Hi, Piers. How are you doing? I'm very well. How are you? Not bad. Not bad at all. Thank you very, very much. Thanks for having me here. No, no, no. My pleasure. Thank you very much for joining us. So today we're going to be doing the 10 things. 10. What is your hobby? Okay. Well, my hobby is that I, I own exotic animals. So I've got some reptiles. I've got a big tarantula. I've got a couple of dogs. They're not really exotic. We've got some uh, giant African land snails. So, yeah, that's, that's my hobby and what I like to do. Nine. So when did you start doing this? Well, there's a story with this, and it all started with a dream. A dream? A dream. <laughs> Tell a lie. It actually wasn't a dream. It was a nightmare. I woke up one night screaming, as I tended to do quite frequently. So all of my little life, I had been severely arachnophobic. I would have nightmares about spiders, and I would wake up in the night screaming. I would check every corner of a room before I step foot in it. When the garden spiders start coming out in October, I wouldn't actually leave the house because I was that frightened. So this one night, I had this nightmare, woken up screaming, and I thought I can't carry on like this. So I did some research and managed to find a friendly spider program. You turn up for the day with... 40 other people that have also got the same fear as you and you get to ask all of those questions that you want to ask about these things like how does it feel if a spider bites you does are they running at you in the night do they really go in your mouth when you sleep 
these are the, these are the questions you want to actually know. So this was actually at a zoo. So these people know exactly what they're talking about. So it gave you a, a safe place to be able to ask these questions, which was great. Then afterwards, there was a session of hypnosis. And I think I wanted it so badly. I wanted to get rid of this fear so badly. To pass the, the day, you needed to be able to get a house spider and put it into a cup and put a piece of paper underneath it because that's all you need to do to be able to deal with a spider in your life. So to pass it, all I had to do, nice big house spider, glass over the top, paper underneath, and then release it back into the box. That was brilliant. So I could then carry on with my life. Then one of the staff came out and asked if anybody would like to hold a tarantula. (laughs) And obviously I say I wanted it so badly, I nearly ran at that guy. So there I was holding this tarantula with the most enormous smile on my face because I had finally conquered this fear. It was one of the most amazing days of my life. The very next day, my husband and I went out and we bought our own tarantula. That's commitment. What sort of tarantula did you go for? Um, She is a Mexican red need tarantula. Um, She was relatively small when we first got her, about the size of a 50 pence piece. And now she's just shy of the size of my hand. That's a big spider. She is a big spider, but my God, they are fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. I do say she is the most boring pet that we have because she will sit in the same position for four days at a time. But she's absolutely beautiful. Hey, let's move on then um, to what first drew you to it. You've talked about your problem with arachnophobia, but you have other pets other than spider, don't you? Yes. Um, so it got out of hand all very quickly, I won't lie. Um, alongside not liking spiders, I didn't like other insects. Um, so grasshoppers, butterflies, anything creepy crawly, it just completely freaked me out. Um, but my husband had been saying he wanted a bearded dragon forever. So after we've now got the spider... We went and we got a bearded dragon. But obviously, I didn't know how I was going to be because bearded dragons, they eat live food. So they eat crickets, they eat locusts, they eat big, chunky worms. Um, But it turns out the the arachnophobia covered that as well. So I was all okay. Um, Even today, this afternoon, I fed the dragons and I had a locust jump on me and then later on, it's jumped back off me when I'm in the kitchen. You're completely relaxed um, about that now. It, yeah, it's really strange because, I mean, I never would. I, I pick them up, I move them around. I've got a cockroach running up my arm and things. It just, yeah, you just get so used to it yeah. and there's no fear of it. Um, it all stemmed from the spider then. And, and uh, so you, you say now you've got several snakes as well? Yeah, absolutely. So we have three snakes. We've got two corn snakes. So corn snakes are relatively placid. They're like a beginner snake. Um, we have Sirius. So Sirius is two years old. Um, he's not He's not very big, probably about two foot long. We have Ember. Ember is a rescue snake. He's 14 years old. And he's just got such an amazing personality. If you let him go out and about for a bit, he will climb up door frames and stairs. And if you didn't keep your eye on him, then you would realize that's how snakes get lost. December, 
December, I literally woke up one morning and decided I wanted a python. And ideas don't last long in our house. So I will say to my husband, I was thinking about, could I fit another vivarium in here? Because they are relatively large. Then he makes it happen. So off we go, go and get a new python around Christmas time. We're in the shop. We meet him. I tell him my name is mum. This is dad. You'll be coming to live with us in the zoo. Um, so, yeah, his name is Bumblebee, uh, and he was born in July. At the moment, he's about a foot long. He's quite chunky, but he is absolutely stunning. Completely different to the corn snakes. I'm just thinking about the pets that you have. So you have the spider, you have the snakes. These all shed their skin. They do. Obviously, they need no help with this. But is there anything you need to do to enable that to happen or to make them feel more comfortable with that process? Okay, with the with the spider, there's absolutely nothing. A spider will, when it is ready to molt, their body goes really dark and all of a sudden they will literally flip upside down and over a space of, it can be between 20 minutes and 24 hours, they will vibrate their old skin off their body. They shed their teeth, their eyes, absolutely everything. So then with the reptiles, they they can shed bits and pieces. They'll shed an arm, they'll shed a leg, a tail, their head. It looks like they've exploded when their head starts to shed. It's hilarious. With them, what you can do, you can put them in the bath to help right. with the skin. It kind of dry, it will wetten it, then it will dry it up and it will help it come off. Especially if you get mm. some shed that gets stuck, you can use that. I love it. I, I have got a box of all of the sheds that any of our animals have ever done because I just find it so fascinating. Well, we may have already answered the next question then, but I'll ask it anyway. Seven. Uh, what do you most enjoy about your hobby? I say it is hard work and it, it is nonstop, but they have all got their own different personalities. So it's like having having a different person here. I say I'm, mm. I tell people I'm a mother of 13. So I've got... <laughs> Apart from the snails, they tend to all be very similar acting. Um, but yeah, everyone's got their own different personalities, their own different quirks, the, the behaviours that they do and things like that. It's like knowing other, other people. Six. In that case, let's ask you what you least like about your hobby. It's the poop. <laughs> it is the poop. Lizards and snake poop is the stinkiest thing I've ever smoked in all my life. You can wake up in the morning and be laid in bed and know that one of the snakes at the other end of the house has gone for a poop. <laughs> oh, it's That's savage. That's horrific. Yeah. Yeah. Long distance smells are never a, never a good thing. No. Five. Okay. Next question then is describe a typical session, I would normally say, but I think a day in the life of your zoo. Oh, well, it starts early. I can imagine. Um, I say... Obviously, I've got the dogs as well. They're not exotic, but they're in my routine. Yeah. Um, so I'll get up in the morning. I'll sort the dogs out. I'll do their dinners, let them out in the garden, get them settled down. Um, the bearded dragons, they all need to have fresh veggies every day. So they have spring greens, grated up carrot, squash. Um, and then on that, you need to either put calcium for their bones or their vitamins. If they don't get sufficient vitamin D going into their system, they can get a, uh, a metabolic bone disorder. 
and that can be extremely painful it can cause deformities and it's terrible but that's just simply if they don't get the calcium that they need in their system once they have their veggies obviously we check how everyone is if there's any poops we clean the poops don't leave them lurking around (laughs) (laughs) and then with the snakes we it's fresh water um, and you need to you need to check their humidity and you need to check their temperatures. You also need to check the temperatures with the bearded dragons too. Okay. With Bumblebee, he's the python. Because he would be in a rainforest, we have waters to spray in there. He needs to have a high humidity. His humidity needs to get up to 80% and then leave it for the day and it will gradually go back down like it would in the rainforest. The other two... They don't need that. They just need fresh water. Mm. Um, the snakes, they are fed. The smaller ones are fed once a week on a Sunday, and the larger one is fed every other week. Um, they fed mice. They are frozen mice. They are dead. Um, so you have a, a very small one, a medium one, and a large one. Wow. And they go to the snakes accordingly. Um, then in the evening time, the bearded dragons will need their, their live bugs. Locusts, crickets, cockroaches. They could eat two tubs, three tubs sometimes if, they, if they're hungry. In one sitting? Yeah. Really? Especially if you, if you have a baby bearded dragon, all they eat is the protein because they need to mm. grow. They're getting bigger. Um, yeah, they can eat boxes and boxes of these, these bugs. There's been times I can spend only 50 pounds a week just getting the right bugs. Good grief. So we haven't talked much about the snails. Uh, tell me a bit about your snails, please. We have four giant African land snails. Three of them are albino. For them, they come in clutches, so yeah. they're from the same clutch. And then I have, I say, a normal one, the usual brown. Yeah. And his name is Odin. Odin was the first one, and he is now bigger than my fist. He is absolutely stunning. I literally turned up to the pet shop one day and I thought, an African land snail. We haven't got any of those. And there I go. And now we've got four. So they're great. Um, I love their, their, their eyes. When they're, they're, what are they called? I want to call them antennas and they're not. They're not. They're just no, really I can't think of the correct plain. word, but yes, I know what you mean. Because no, they retract them, definitely. don't they, and then poke them back out again. And they're just adorable. Yeah. And this, is, this is what I like about snails. They have a certain elegance to them. Uh, so, so what do you have to do? Just spray them with water, keep them moist? What, what's, the, what's, yeah. the, what's the routine for them? Um, with them, I so said, you, you need to spray them with water to keep, again, the humidity needs to be quite high with them. Um, the substrate that they're on, that needs to be kept moist for them so they can bear it. They can burrow into it. Um, they have a lot of veggies. You can feed them fish food, as in fish food flakes. You put fish food flakes into a bowl, a little bit of water, and for them, it's classed as protein. So it helps them grow themselves, and it helps them look after their shell. Um, they need to have cuttlefish, as you would find on the beach. Um, they need to have cuttlefish in there. This, again... it it helps them be able to grow yeah. and their shell is that's what they need for it um they need to be kept relatively warm so the way we have it set up they have got their own box the four of them they've got flower pots in there they've got veggies and they sit 
on the side of the vivarium above one of the bearded dragons where their basking light is. Mm. So the heat from underneath comes up and through. How long do the snails live for? The snails, again, I think they can, they can go up to about 10 years or so. They're not, as, again, none of these animals are short term. None of them at all. No. Four. I think you've already answered this question, but uh, how do you find the time for it? You don't find time at all. As I say, I've signed up for this. To me, they're my family. So it's not finding time. It's just looking after them. It's being concerned about their well-being, what they need. It isn't finding time. It is just an extension of family. Three. What are the barriers to becoming involved in this sort of hobby? Unfortunately, Piers, and I say unfortunately, because I'm so passionate about this, and it is really difficult to be able to find the right information. There isn't just one book that says this is how you do it. There are so many different variations. And unfortunately, if you fancied, you could go on down to a pet shop tomorrow and go and pick yourself up a nice bearded dragon and go on home with it. You don't need to have any experience. Unfortunately, a lot of the pet shops don't ask to see what you've got set up. If you've got the right thermometers, the right UV lighting, the temperatures, they don't ask. And unfortunately, as we say, with, with pet shops and that, they are still a business. So they will sell. So what would you do to make the situation better? It, is, it really is. It's about education. It really is about education. Two. So if people want to get involved and want to get that knowledge, where should they go? Are there clubs? Are there associations? Are there... Are there, are there groups that they could join where, they, where the information it's a really is good? It's difficult one to answer, Piers. Because, again, you can go onto Facebook and you can get one person who says, beat your dog with a stick, and they've got 100 followers, and you've got someone else who goes, give your dog a treat and tell it it's a good boy, and you've got 100 followers. Can we find another question? Yeah. One. Yeah, we can. We can move on then. Um, because we've come to the most challenging part of the day, uh, and that is that you have 30 seconds to sell me your hobby. Holly Dakin, your time starts now. Okay. Um, to be honest, I wouldn't want to sell this hobby to anybody because this is one of those hobbies, unless you are so dedicated to it and you need to be passionate and you need to put a lot of hard work into it. If you are not worried about... The, the temperatures, the humidity, and the state of your bugs, you really aren't going to. Oh, no, Piz! It isn't the hobby for you if you're not going to put all that dedication into it. It is an amazing piece of. gone. <laughs> that was terrible! That was horrific! Would you like to have another go? Because you're not the first person to have another go. Hang on. <laughs> Do you want to try again? No. No, we're going to leave it. We're going to leave that one. Yeah. I, I, I sure? don't care. That's got all my thing across. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Holly, thank you so much for joining us today and speaking with such passion and with such knowledge about creatures that you care for. It's clear that they're an important part of your life. And maybe what you've said today will make people think twice when they enter a pet shop about the amount of commitment that's required uh, and the equipment that they need and the knowledge 
and the dedication that they have to put in to caring for these animals. Thank you. Thank you, Piers. I've, I've had a brilliant time and it's, I, I love talking about this. Um, as I say, I'm so passionate about it. I, I really could. I could talk for hours. I really could. But thank you so much for inviting me here. Conclusion. This isn't a hobby for me. Let's be upfront about that. The time, the cost, not to mention the equipment required puts me off. I don't want the level of responsibility necessary here. I hope it will make you think twice, too. I'll stick to caring for my cat, Finn. I cut an awful lot out of the interview. It was nearly three times as long as the finished article. Holly knows a lot about her pets and has such passion about their care, I hope that still came across. I must point out that Holly wasn't criticising all pet shops. Most are responsible, but it's the few that tar the rest with a bad brush. Details, such as bearded dragons being sold with sand as their substrate, which causes health issues, where they should be on slate or similar hard surfaces because they taste their environment, had to be cut, but I'm mentioning them here to give you some idea of what was lost. I was curious as to why Holly felt there was a lot of conflicting information out there and did a quick web search after we finished speaking. It's true, there's a lot of conflicting stuff for the unaware. I found a couple of resources that may be of interest and posted them in the episode notes. The first is a series of care instruction leaflets issued by the RSPCA here in the UK. The second is a link to the British Herpetological Society, the BHS. Hopefully, the information there can set you on the right path if you're interested in exotic pets and reduce the chances of misery for both you and your new pet. That's it for today's episode. All being well, the next episode will be out in a week's time. Don't forget, I'd like to talk to you about your hobbies. Please drop me a line at the email in the show notes. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review on the app of your choice. It all helps get this podcast in front of new eyes and ears. Until next time, I've been Piers and this has been The Hobbyist, the podcast about hobbies and interests. <laughs>